Amen. Thanks, Jessica. Awesome. Good morning, River family. Good to see you. One of the absolute treats of being a pastor is we get paid to study the Bible. And uh, part of our teaching team this summer, spring, we've just been immersing ourselves in the four Gospels, these these incredible gifts that are given to us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we've sort of taken a, a deep dive into the gospel stories, these narratives about the life of Jesus, uh, we, we let percolate up from the conversations Jesus had with people in reaction to the things that he had done. And we sort of discovered four kind of driving core values that Jesus believed and lived into. And we sort of had this epiphany that these are four values that have been true of the River Church from the very, very beginning. And these four are the basis of our series, Conversations with Jesus. Love God, enjoy people, play your part, and share the story. And we feel that sort of encapsulates some of the, the driving motivation of Jesus. But also, it, it characterizes this church. And so last Sunday, Todd kicked us off. The greatest commandment. What is it, Jesus? What's the greatest commandment? He said, love God with everything you've got. This is number one. Do this, love God, and then do whatever else you want. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But I often wrestle with the question, but, but how do I love God? I can't see God. It's easy for me to turn it into a kind of an emotional, fleeting feeling that goes nowhere. It's just like, what, what does it mean to love God? And the early disciples wrestled with the same question. They were frustrated. They were following Jesus all around Galilee and kind of watching what he was doing, and yet at the same time, they're wanting to grow deep in their love for God. They want to obey the greatest command. And so in one point, uh, Philip says to Jesus, says, well, okay, Jesus, just show us the Father, and we'll be okay. Just show us. And this is what Jesus said to Philip and the other disciples. Jesus said, hey, listen, guys. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's a bold statement. He said, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And then John, he's the the beloved disciple, the one that, that, that was so full of love, that wrote so much about love in his own gospel. He said in the very beginning, he said, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made God known. You want to know how to love God? Look at Jesus. Learn from Jesus. Be a follower of Jesus. In our text this morning is in Matthew chapter 60. I want to encourage you, if you've got a Bible on your phone or uh, this one is made out of paper... And uh, I love it. Um, Matthew 16, will you join me there? You can follow along. And uh, I, I 
in reading this and talking and, and thinking, you know, how, how do I love God as I look at Jesus? There's three kind of observations I want to make. But here, here's the big idea. The path to loving God travels through the door of allegiance to Jesus. And that's a very narrow statement, but I want you to, to consider that and to mull that over as I'm talking this morning. The path to loving God travels through the door of allegiance to Jesus. So, observation number one. The location of Matthew 16 is really strategic. And you know, location, location, location. So in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. So we've not only got time in the story, but we got a geographic location. You notice that chapter 16 is basically halfway through the gospel. This is a key turning point in the journey of Jesus, which you know ended up on the cross and the resurrection. We're kind of halfway. We're in the middle. And Jesus has been a disruptor in the first 15 chapters. I took time to read through those again and again. Jesus' words and his works. The things he did, his actions, and then his conversations around those actions were profound. There's all this healing going on. Jesus manifests power over nature. He challenges the demons. He's forgiving sins. He's calling and loving the least likely people. He's making astounding claims about himself, and he's challenging the authorities. And huge crowds are following Jesus. Like, they're, they're just, they're flocking to get near him, to be fed by him, to be healed by him, to touch him, to feel his love. But in the midst of the crowds, Jesus is especially calling out and seeking 12 to follow him that they would be his disciples. And he's investing in them. He's training them. He's giving special attention to them. He's inviting them to follow him along. Now, in the first century, there's this growing expectation in the midst of Roman oppression that God send a deliverer. And as they read the ancient Hebrew um, documents, there is this growing understanding that God was going to send an anointed one. And he would be, in a sense, uh, a new King David, because they look back with such fond memories on the greatest king and his rule and God's promises in the scriptures that someday there'd be a king in the lineage of David who would rule over, who would throw off the oppression of Rome, who would bring justice and through Israel would bless the whole world. And as Jesus did his works and spoke his words, there was significant opposition. In fact, the religious leaders were so opposed to what Jesus was doing, they were so threatened by him that they actually began to have conversations with themselves and plot together how they could kill him. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. 
He knew exactly where he was. He knew exactly what time it was. And he was in charge of the process. And so he took his disciples up to the region of Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles straight north from the Sea of Galilee, like out of the, out of the, bu- out of the buzz, out of the, away from the crowds, away from those religious authorities, some private time with his disciples where he could have an important conversation with them. And it's, Caesarea Philippi is a beautiful place. I've been there. And uh, it's way up. It sits at the foot of uh, the mountains that lead to 9,000-foot Mount Hermon. And uh, they believe that, you know, maybe the Jordan River has its headwaters there. Uh, But it wasn't completely private because Caesarea Philippi, where um, the, the beautiful lush green and the waterfall and the, and, the, and, the, and the streams coming down out of the mountains, this gorgeous place. It was also an incredibly spiritual place because there you had all these temples and little grottos to every Greek god you could imagine, especially Pan, the Greek god Pan, who they believe was the god of nature, nature and nymphs, by the way. But not only the Greek gods, this super spiritual place where every religion was available, it also um, housed this beautiful, glistening white marble temple dedicated to Caesar. So here you have the Greek gods, and then you have Roman power. So Jesus gets away. He takes his disciples away from the buzz, but certainly not away from the mixture of all of the cultural influences that um, spoke Um, opposition to him and to his mission. So he gets with his disciples in this private place in Caesarea Philippi. And verse 13, he asks his disciples, so what's the word on the street? Who do people think I am? What what, what are they saying? What are are people saying? Now, Jesus has an important Um, plan in this question and he wants the disciples to give him feedback on what what's the popular opinion out there in terms of what people are thinking about uh, Jesus and they replied verse 14 some say John the Baptist come back to life and others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets this is the category of Prophets we might call the wild ones. I mean, these were courageous, bold, challenging the authorities, completely unafraid to call out injustice. And they came to be understood as the ones before the one. Like, they're the forerunners. There's this understanding that before the anointed one comes, before the Messiah comes, there's going to be a forerunner who will light it up. And people are saying, hey, maybe Jesus is one of those forerunners. Maybe he's another uh, wild man, you know, who will set the stage. And when he comes, we know the kingdom of God is probably right on its way on his heels. The reality is when Jesus asks, who do people say the son of man is? He's He's getting to a more important question because it always gets personal. My second observation is how personal Jesus is about to get with his disciples. 
He says in verse 15, but what about you? Looks his disciples right in the eyes and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Have you ever sat in a therapist's office before? I have. And you know that you can be talking about all the stuff that is out there. And a keen, insightful therapist is eventually going to say, okay, that's great, all that stuff out there. But what about the stuff in here? They'll eventually get there, you know. They know exactly what they're doing, listening and waiting, because it's never really just about your mother. Right? You can talk all about your mother. You can talk all about your boss. You can talk all about your spouse. All this stuff out there. And eventually, the real question is, what about you? What's, what's going on inside you? And that's, that's what Jesus is doing in this moment. Not only with the disciples, but I pray he's doing it with us this morning right here in this time we have together. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And the emphasis is on you. Jesus says, now you. Who do you say that I am? That was the real question. It's the question that every disciple has to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? And notice Peter's profound answer. He says in verse 16, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, Peter declares. And everyone's going, whoa, yeah, bingo, bingo. That is the right answer. You're the Messiah. We might translate that Christ. It's the the word for the anointed one. You're not the one before the one. Jesus, you're the one. The one that God has sent. You're like King David. It's as if Peter is saying, Jesus, you're the king. And there's no other king besides you. Another way we might say it, you're, you're the Lord. You're the Lord of the universe. You're my leader. You're my master. You're the son of the living God, which refers to Jesus' unique relationship with his father. You're the son of the living God. And this is really amazing because right where they're at is this massive temple to Caesar. Then the the ruler of the known world, the most powerful person on the face of the planet. And he, Caesar, was fond of taking on the name, I'm a son of God. And that eventually morphed into his deity, that Caesar is is a god. That's this idea, son of God. And Peter declares, Jesus, you're the son of God. You, You know what he's saying? Jesus, you're Lord. You are king. And Caesar is not. Now, Rome had a, had a way of dealing with, um, you know, these would-be little messiahs and people that, that wanted to take on Roman power. You know what they do? They use military might, and they would squash them and kill them. That's what crucifixion was all about. We'll crucify these rebel Jews... 
as a warning to everyone else. You mess with Rome and this is what's going to happen to you. And Peter declares, hey, in this private, beautiful location, in the shadow of Rome, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies to him in verse 17, Peter, you're blessed. Bless you, Peter. Bless you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this insight, this declaration you've just made was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. Not not your rational mind. You didn't just come up with this all on your own, Peter. But this has been given to you as a revelation from my Father who's in heaven. God gave you the insight, Peter, to get an understanding of who Jesus really is. That just brings me to this idea that Jesus' identity is not based on a public opinion poll. And I would imagine, you know, we could go to the Rams game today and, you know, walk them down the aisles. I don't recommend you do this. You'll get thrown out. But just say, hey, I'm just taking a, a poll. Who do you think Jesus is? Imagine some of the answers that might come your way. If you just walked up to some guy and he's got two beers and, you know, one in either hand and he's already had four. Hey, who do you think Jesus is? I mean, we would get all sorts of answers, wouldn't we? We just get, we, we get a plethora of personal opinions. People have all sorts of opinions about who Jesus is. And Jesus is telling Peter, your human understanding is not what is vital at this point. It's what, it's the insight that God will break through and give you. And I just, I want to say that I'm, even now I'm aware and I'm praying that when we stand up here and we open up the scriptures, you know, those of us that we work really hard um, because we know you expect a lot. We work really hard. But, you know, in the end, I know that it's not the things that I say that make a difference. It is the Holy Spirit choosing in a particular moment using the words of a human and the proclamation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he takes those words and he takes them in midair and he penetrates someone's ears and heart and then something happens between that person and God and it may have nothing to do with what the teacher has said. That's the amazing, surprising thing when someone comes up and says, oh yeah, you know, God was working in my heart while you were speaking and he told me and he did this and I go, I never said anything close to that. That's the beauty of what God does. That's why we come together, we open up the scriptures. And I pray that even even now that the Holy Spirit is at work doing that. A disciple is always asking the question, have I got it right? Have I got it right? Do I understand? Do, Do I really have insight, Jesus, into who you are? A disciple is always asking, do I want to get it right? Am I willing to look directly into the eyes of Jesus and see him for who he really is? Have I got it right? Jesus says to his disciples, he says to you and me, he says, guys, 
we've been walking together for a couple years now. You've been watching me. You've been learning about me. I've been teaching you. I've been modeling for you. I've been showing you different things. I've been challenging you. I've been pushing you. You've had an opportunity. Who do you say I am? I think in our journey, and all of us are at different places on that journey, but Jesus is asking the exact same question to us. So you've had some time. You've been considering. Who do you say that I am? I grew up in the church. Wonderful Christian family, fantastic church experience. But man, I'll tell you what. You know, when you're born into it, and I don't know, I just grew really tired and bored. And I go to Sunday school and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I know, I know. It sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus. Okay, okay. And I just got bored and tuned it out. And I was far more attracted to things that moved a whole lot faster. And my relationship with God just kind of went by the wayside, even though I'd been given all, you know, everything, and uh, sports and girls and whatnot, and uh, I felt like I'd walked away from God, but he clearly had never, ever walked away from me. He was involved. He was in pursuit. He was working in my life and through different people, loving people, People that pushed me, people that didn't give up on me, people that knew, and, and they just, they hung in there with me. Oh, man, it's so important with high school kids, you know. Just keep loving them. And I remember I went on a, uh, a mission project, very similar to the folks that are down in Ensenada with Baja Bound, right this moment, building, building a church. I went on a, an opportunity like that. And, you know, sometimes you get out of your, especially as a 17-year-old, your comfortable, you know, zone of you know everything. And now you're in an incredibly impoverished place with these faithful believers that have so much faith. I just was blown away. And you know what God did in that moment? He overwhelmed me with how much he loved me. Why would you love me and it was humbling, it was overwhelming, it was captivating. And at 17 years of age, my life began to turn around. And a couple months later, I remember standing in a, a, a baptismal pool, and for the very first time in my life, uh, I stood up and I declared my faith in Jesus. And I was, I was, I was so nervous. And I said, you know, I mean, the past, Christ forgiven me. He is my Lord. I'm going to be his disciple, and I'm going to follow him. And it changed the course of my life. And to answer to the question, who do you say that I am? The only way this mission that Jesus was starting was going to advance is if disciples were to know and follow him for who he really is. And yet, that's not all. It's all well and good, but here there's a twist to the plot. 
He says in verse 20, then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Are you kidding me? Wait, I don't get it. Peter's just declared who you really are because of God's insight and revelation. And now you say, okay, guys, don't tell anybody. Why did he say that? I think there's two reasons. One, I think Jesus wanted to control the narrative. He was in charge and he knew what was happening and what his future was. And he wanted to control how that story got out. So guys, don't say anything. But I think secondly, he knew his disciples. He, he knew them intimately. And even though Pe- Peter had got this part right, he knew they weren't ready. You guys, you're not ready yet to be going and, you know, whoo-hoo, telling everybody about me and my identity. Because look at what he says in verse 21. From that time on, This is that big shift in the story. The big shift in the journey of Jesus. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples. And what was he explaining to them from that time on? Get this, guys. That he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Are you kidding me? What? And look at what Peter did. Peter took him aside. It's literally Peter grabbed Jesus by the arm and pulled him away from the other guys and said, uh, and began to rebuke him and then said, Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter is telling Jesus what his story is going to be. You're the king. And kings don't suffer. And besides, I'm your follower. And I don't like this. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block To me, Peter goes from being the rock to being a stumbling block. And isn't that all of our stories to a certain extent? You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He declared that Jesus was the Messiah because God had given him revelatory insight. And now Jesus says, you're not thinking the way God thinks. You're thinking as a mere mortal and you need to get behind me because You're doing things that are similar to Satan. Wow. Talk about putting Peter in his place. Talk about from highs to lows. A king that will suffer. Peter got it right. You are the Messiah. But what he couldn't understand, what so many didn't anticipate, is that the Messiah would suffer. It's, it's there in the scriptures, but nobody could see it. And friends, I'll tell you what. This is the place where a lot of people bail when it gets hard. We want Jesus to be the king. Woohoo! Our side is winning. Victory. 
We get to reign with him. This is fantastic. And Jesus says, yeah, but I got to go to Jerusalem and go to the cross. I'm going to be killed. And then we say, uh, no, I think I'm out. I don't think I want to do that. When life gets hard, when we don't understand what is going on, when someone gets sick, when a spouse bails, when our family disintegrates, when we lose our job, when the promotion doesn't come, the, the list goes on and on and on. When life is hard, we go, why God? I don't get it. And so many at that point, understandably, say, if that's the kind of God we have, I'm not in. Suffering's hard. It's really, really hard. Disappointment hits us at a very deep level. And it's at that point we say, wait, if you're king, can't you just snap your fingers and change this? And the reality is that oftentimes he doesn't. He changes us. This is not about what's happening out there. It's what's happening right inside here. The path to loving God travels through the door of allegiance to Jesus. Is he Lord or not? Who do you say I am? And allegiance to Jesus travels the way of the cross. Allegiance to Jesus travels the way of the cross. What does loving God look like? The greatest command, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? Well, here's one way to say it in the words of Jesus in verse 24. Then he said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The king has set his face to Jerusalem. He wants us to follow him and take up our own cross, denying ourselves in the process. This is really hard. When Jesus was betrayed, and then he was in the garden, praying, wrestling with God about what was about to happen as he would give his life for all the world. He prayed and in agony said to God, please, is there another way? And then he said, not my will, but your will be done. That's the cry of the disciple. Not my will, but your will be done. Being a disciple of Jesus is not just knowing about Jesus, it's knowing Jesus and following him. And he asks us all again today, who do you say that I am? He asks that of me today, who do you say that I am? And in my conversations with people, I, I think sometimes we put Jesus in a box. There's the therapeutic Jesus. That's the one. Give me a happy life, Jesus. In other words, Jesus, I'll follow you because you're going to meet all my needs. Jesus won't be put in that box. Now, it's true. He will meet our needs. He'll meet our real needs. 
There's also the moral Jesus that says, oh, look, you know, I'm part of these good people, and, and I think, you know, I'm good enough, I'm a good person, I'm kind to people, so therefore, Jesus, you'll bless me. There's a homeboy Jesus, right? He's a buddy that will pal around with us. Or maybe he's the boyfriend Jesus, you know? Like, I mean, we'll have a date on Friday night and hang out with Jesus. There's the first responder Jesus. That's where, oh, man, I'm in deep trouble, and I really need help right now. Oh, Jesus, I promise to follow you. Jesus will burst those boxes. Who's the Jesus that you're following? For me, I'm with Paul. He said in Romans 12, he said, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. For me, the problem is I'm a living sacrifice. I get on the altar and then I keep crawling off of it over and over and over again. And the deal is, you know, Peter, he got it right a lot of the time. But he also got it horribly wrong. He denied Jesus. And we'll look at this more closely in weeks to come. But you remember at the end of John, Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter thought it was all lost. He'd given up on himself because he had denied even knowing Jesus with curses. And Jesus had a one-on-one conversation with him. And he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And man, that, that just hit the deepest part of Peter's heart. How could my Savior ask me that question? I've done everything to tell him I don't. And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know me. You know that I really do. And you know what Jesus said? He said, Peter, get back in the game. Peter, get back in the game. Peter, you're not done. As we come to this table, the bands, the worship team's going to come on up. We come to this table and we do something we do every week. We have these little bits of bread, and we put it in the juice, and then we eat it, and, and it's a moment of reflection. This, this, this morning, this, this table represents loving God in our allegiance to Jesus. And that allegiance is the pathway to the cross. That's what makes this table significant, is that Jesus faced Jerusalem, stayed the course, and went on the cross. So when you take that bread, which represents the broken body of Jesus, and you take it and you dip it in the juice, and then you eat it, you're taking Jesus, his life, into your body. It's a declaration of who you believe Jesus to be. It's not just a ritual It's not just a habit. It's something where we have a moment to pause and reflect on the answer to the question. Who do you say Jesus is? And before that bread and juice goes into your mouth, just declare privately to yourself who Jesus is. Amen? Amen. Thanks for leading us.